Hello, welcome to this episode of Charles Communicable Research. My name's Andy Tattersall and I work at the School of Health and Related Research at the University of Sheffield. Over this series of occasional podcasts, we'll hear from researchers at Shaw and the work they undertake to tackle some of the world's biggest health challenges. We'll also hear from academics within the department and on occasion elsewhere, how they communicate their research and the methods they use. If you want to know more about Shaw, then you can find us on the web at the University of Sheffield and on Twitter at Shaw Sheffield. We're also on Facebook, so feel free to follow us for updates on there. Without further ado, let's get on with the latest episode. In this episode, we're going to explore the emotive topic of infertility in the Gambia. And I'm going to be joined by Dr. Julie Balin from Shah's Public Health Group, who is collaborating with Professor Susan Delix from the Research Centre of Gender Diversity and Intersectionality, based in Belgium. We'll also hear from Professor Alan Pacey, who is an international expert in the field of andrology and head of department in oncology and metabolism at the University of Sheffield. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Julie and, and Susan. And I appreciate you've Susan's based in uh, um, Ghent at the moment in Belgium. So thanks for joining me both. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for having us. I, I want to start off by... Uh, we're going to talk about your research and I want to um, start off by saying that so we increasingly talk about international collaboration uh, and this is quite a unique story as to how you both became aware of the each other's research can you tell me how this journey actually came about so Zad and I actually met in the Gambia over a decade ago um, when we were both based there as part of our previous work in collaboration with the medical research council unit and at that time, we were part of a small team of academics aiming to build up social sciences and health systems research at the unit. And we were working on a project about uh, malaria. And several years after that, we both simultaneously but independently began to think about research on infertility in the Gambia. Suzanne from an anthropological perspective and me from a health policy and health systems one. And we discovered um, almost by chance that we were both interested in this rather niche topic. Um, so we had a few discussions and decided to collaborate. It made a lot of sense um, since we had known each other for some time and already had a, a trusting working relationship. So we shared ideas and worked together on infertility from a broader interdisciplinary perspective. And that was five years ago. And, well, we've never looked back. Um, it's been quite an incredible journey uh, for us both. So, Julie, you're a health researcher by trade. And, Susan, you work in social sciences. So how beneficial is it to have those cross-disciplinary collaborations in modern research? And what have you actually learned from each other? Well, I think it's very beneficial, and I think really that's where the future is, and I think many believe, people believe that together with me. I've learned a lot from Julie, as she's one of the first health system researchers I ever met. In Belgium, it's not so um, yeah, present yet, uh, at least not at the university. So uh, I learned a lot about health systems, of course, thanks to Julie, and I think our findings are very complementary. As an anthropologist, I look into the experiences of people and to the, into the social and cultural context of uh, and how that influences the experience of people. And that really uh, complements the findings of, or the focus on the health system research. In addition, I think in Julie, I found a, a mentor 
which is something I think a lot of people are looking for. A lot of women and young researchers are looking for. I learned a lot about her, not only about like about health systems, but also about collaborations, about funding applications. She just provides me with a lot of support for my research career. And I think, yeah, that's just amazing to have as somebody. And it's maybe across uh, different countries, but that's just really nice about global health is how about yeah, you can work together with people from different places and, and contexts. Yeah. Uh, I can see, I can see Julie's face is beaming and smiling. So, what what have you learned? Um, yeah, well, uh, I agree. Like Suzanne said, this is interdisciplinary research is is really um, uh, key to understanding these kinds of global challenges, uh, global health challenges that we are working on, and it is, I believe, the future of research. And we started off with. Suzanne as an anthropologist, myself in health systems, but now we also work with other people, including biomedical um, scientists, reproductive health specialists, um, clinicians, lawyers, and all sorts of different uh, disciplines. And I think there's really a benefit, a huge benefit to uh, bringing these different disciplines um, together. And I've personally learned a lot as well from, from, from working with Suzanne. Um, I think we, we work really well together. We struck up this collaboration many years ago. We started off really small, thinking of just, you know, small funds here and there, small projects. And, and we've built now um, together quite a, a large team and and we are um, building some really interesting research together. The collaboration you're involved in focuses on infertility in the Gambia. So how much of a problem is it in that country? Infertility um, in general in sub-Saharan Africa is much higher than in other uh, regions. When you look at the prevalent states, it's mainly based, of course, on women. A study published in 2001 in the Gambia found that 9.8% of participants are infertile with secondary infertility. And that study defined as no pregnancy after at least 12 months of regular unprotected sexual intercourse, affecting 8.8% of all participants. So that's actually quite comparable to other sub-Saharan African countries. Now, when we look at the psychological, the social and the economic impact of infertility, we are confronted with a huge problem. My PhD research, um, uh, while I was doing my fieldwork, I really found that, which was on women experiencing infertility in the urban context of the Gambia, I found that a lot of women are struggling with it. Women are being stigmatized in their community. Women, uh, infertility also constitutes an important uh, mental health problem. Women often describe it as the greatest grief in their lives. And then there's also the economic impact. So a lot of women, but also men, are looking for healthcare. And especially women, they are often in very long um, health-seeking paths. Some of the women I talked to were looking for treatment for over 10 years. So this sounds like a quite a terrible situation. And how much research has been conducted in this area, especially within that region of Africa? Uh, there really hasn't been much research conducted on infertility in the region, and it remains quite a neglected topic in global reproductive health, especially when compared to, say, other maternal and child health issues or infectious diseases or even non-communicable diseases. And this is despite um, up to one in four couples in the region believed to be facing fertility challenges in their lifetime, compared to about one in seven couples in the UK. In the Gambia, for example, when we started this work, there had been no publications on infertility for almost 20 years, and now there are about two dozen. 
And there are several reasons for this being under-researched, one of which is that infertility has been conceptualized and defined in different ways by different people. And there are multiple ways of framing and understanding infertility and how it's, uh, how it's experienced. So is it a female issue? Is it a male issue? Is it a couple's issue, for example? Is it a purely biomedical condition or a more socially constructed one? What, what are its root causes and how can we best diagnose, manage or treat it within different contexts? There are so many unanswered questions, uh, but resource in, resources in these settings are already very limited, and funding in reproductive health uh, has largely focused on reducing fertility rates, mainly with contraceptives, and improving maternal and neonatal health. And this focus has meant that for people with infertility, despite this being an officially recognized key component of sexual, sexual and reproductive health, their reproductive health needs have in reality been left behind and forgotten. And other reasons for this um, neglect are, of course, that it's a, a very stigmatized and taboo topic, which makes it quite challenging uh, to conduct research on. As part of this podcast, I spoke to Professor Alan Pacey as to how he got involved in the work. And here's what he had to say. So I think I got involved in this project um, quite by chance, actually. I had a chance meeting with uh, Julie Balin a, a couple of years ago, or maybe a little bit longer than that, and uh, uh, we discovered that we had a common interest in uh, fertility issues in, in, in men and women, but from a very different perspective. So I've been uh, worked for 30 years uh, in, in the UK and in other parts of Europe um, looking at fertility problems in men in that arena and Julie was very interested in the same kind of problems but in a low resource setting so it made very uh, obvious sense that we should start talking to each other and start working together uh, and that's really how this project in the Gambia um, was seeded and how I, I got involved. There's a resistance by men to discuss fertility with healthcare specialists in the Gambia and what are the reasons for that? So I think globally we have an issue with men being able to discuss fertility issues with um, healthcare specialists. F fertility issues in couples have unfortunately still been seen as largely a female issue uh, for many years and still today in the global north I think it's um, seen by some as a female issue. So um, we've had to work really hard to try and engage men in fertility issues in high-resource countries. In countries like the Gambia, it's still really unknown um, how men feel about their fertility and whether or not they're willing to engage with healthcare professionals in order to solve fertility issues. And I think part of the problem there is that there isn't always healthcare specialists with expertise in male infertility available in countries like the Gambia. Um, we have to build that capacity, we have to build those um, healthcare systems and we have to build those diagnostic and treatment pathways um, before I think we can even understand whether or not men are willing to engage with them. With regards to male infertility and the stigma around it, what are the lessons you've learned from your work in Sheffield that can be applied in Africa to address this problem? So I think what we've, what we've done in the West uh, and in the Global North is that we've developed some quite sophisticated 
um, tools and techniques to try and treat infertility. But they are expensive and they do require a lot of training and they require a lot of capital infrastructure. What I would hope for a country such as the Gambia is that we could really strip this back uh, and that we could develop healthcare systems that might better provide um, more cost-effective, cheaper solutions um, which fit the healthcare system and the healthcare structures that they have in the Gambia um, better and more efficiently than we've been able to do in the West. I think what we've done in the West is that we've built um, sometimes over-complicated pathways that um, I suspect would not fit well in a, in a Gambian healthcare system. And, and you know, one example that I could give is um, is we have whole laboratories that look at uh, semen quality in in men, and uh, we invest a lot of time and effort in in training and the infrastructure surrounding that. But what we now have is you know very simple mobile phone devices that can make the same measurements in the comfort of a patient's own home. Now, you know, we've not managed to roll those out in, in the UK yet. Um, there's still work to do and, and there's still uh, kind of randomised trials to be done to evaluate these devices. But, you know, maybe in the Gambia, we can really save a lot of time and energy by going straight to, to this kind of technology, which will be cheaper, more efficient, require less training, and ultimately, I think, give... Um, the same kind of data to healthcare professionals and men about their fertility that might um, ultimately guide them to um, a suitable treatment. So that's just one example. We can sh- we hope I would hope that we could short circuit things uh, in the Gambia in a way that we've um, not been able to do in in the global north, but perhaps we should do in the UK and. Obviously, in uh, large parts of Western Europe, there's plenty of support through NHS and private clinics to help couples with re- regards to fertility problems. So what is the support like in the Gambia? There is some support available, uh, but clinical services are very limited to the urbanized coastal areas and to those who can afford access via the private health sector or in the case of some couples who can travel overseas. When we first looked into this in 2018, we found a lack of coordination among different stakeholders involved in fertility care and a very complex pathway that patients had to navigate while seeking care. So we're currently looking into this in more detail to try and understand access to fertility care throughout the country. And I'm referring here to work conducted by a PhD student, Anna Aferi, who Suzanne, Allen, and I co-supervised. Uh, who recently completed a survey of almost 40 public and private clinics in the Gambia. Anna's work has shown that uh, while there are some diagnostic services available, treatment is far more limited. But the good news is that there are signs that this is starting to change now through the uh, awareness raising on the issue. And in fact, our Gambian colleagues who, who we work with are aiming to establish the first IVF treatment centre in the, in the country within the next decade. But it's important to also add that in the Gambia and uh, across uh, much of Africa, in fact, up to 80% of infertility may be caused by untreated sexually transmitted infections such as chlamydia and gonorrhea, resulting in pelvic inflammatory disease and other tubal related factors. So treatment in this case could simply mean 
early, regular and successful treatment of STIs in both members of the couple, uh, which is far more cost effective than assisted reproductive technology. Thank you, Julie. I, I would also like to add to that that what is very interesting about the Gambia is that there are these local groups called Ganyelen Kafu. These are groups for women who experience miscarriages or, or infertility or who have children with a disability. It's not for every ethnic group, but for several uh, ethnic groups, there are these groups of the Kanyeleng, and these are women yeah, who are struggling. And this group serves as a coping mechanism, so women receive social and emotional and sometimes even a little bit of financial support through these groups. It's also a way to overcome infertility by, you know, reads and in, uh, initiations. They aim to protect women against the perceived causes of infertility. So this makes the Gambia a very interesting case to look into the experience of women with infertility, because even though there's no or limited maybe formal support, um, at least there's this informal support mechanism. So culturally, what are some of the barriers that couples face in the Gambia with regards to gaining professional healthcare support? In my opinion, the major barriers are not culturally, but more has to do with gender inequality and with the health system. So I think one major problem is the barriers for men to attend infertility services, because there's still not enough men going to the health centers, joining their uh, women for diagnosis or for treatment. But also there's just not enough services available, like not any advanced medical, technological, um, reproductive assistance. And when they are available or the services that are available are for many people difficult to afford, especially the more advanced technological interventions are only available in the private health centers. And there is just really expensive to go for many people or to pay for the treatments and the diagnosis. And then we need to keep in mind that infertility is not something that is often easily detectable, but often requires multiple visits to go there. Um, and maybe multiple tests and uh, analysis uh, to be done. What is a cultural barrier is the limited knowledge, or what could be seen as a cultural barrier is the limited knowledge about infertility. Infertility is associated with several, multiple causes, but some of them we don't recognize as biomedical. For example, one of the major perceived causes of infertility are Kuntufengo and Seketo, Kuntufengo is a gene causing women to become infertile. Similarly, Seketo is a falconist, um, educated women, and young women would say Seketo is actually um, an ITI or an STI, but women don't see it that way. So when you think about Kuntufengo or Seketo, not all women will go to the health center, but rather attend uh, traditional health providers such as Marabou or herbalist or even uh, female circumcisers. So that plays within this complex process of health systems and looking for healthcare in the Gambia. And I think what Suzanne mentioned um, is, is really important in the sense that with the with the men not often not attending services, if the underlying issue is an STI, as Suzanne was mentioning, and the women tend to attend services and perhaps get diagnosed and treated for that. But if their partners haven't attended service, uh, haven't, haven't, haven't got treatment for it, then that problem continues. And that's what we are kind of finding, is that that problem persists. 
partly because of low engagement with fertility services among Gambian men. So one of the things that we're trying to do in our research now is to raise awareness, uh, both among women but also among men, and among health workers um, of this of this issue in order to try and encourage both members of the couple to seek services together because we think um, this could have quite a, a large impact because if both men and women are getting diagnostic services which are available in parts of the Gambia particularly um, on the urban coastal area the diagnosis is available. The treatment, as Suzanne mentioned, is often limited to private clinics and is it's, it's expensive and many couples can't afford it. But if we could encourage men in particular to engage with services, we think that that could have quite um, a large impact. And so we're trying to raise awareness of these issues um, within society through our research and our engagement with our local partners. So, so as we know, and as we discussed, the burden of infertility often lies and quite unfairly with women. So how is that in contrast uh, in the Gambia compared to such areas such as the UK and uh, Europe? I find this a bit of a tricky question because, of course, the research was not intended to compare. And, you know, there's not a lot of research done to compare the situation between uh, women and the Gambia and other low and middle income countries and the UK. However, what we do see is that in the Gambia, the pronatal norm is so strong. And in comparison to the UK, where being childless as a choice is is an option, uh, this is not really the case in the Gambia. There are also not a lot of alternative identities for women. So becoming a mother is really central to the lives of women. Um, there are, of course, women who are educated and who have a formal job. And for those women, it's much more easier also to escape the tensions of infertility and have an alternative identity. But still, because society puts so much expectations surrounding this, it's very hard for them. And then we should not forget also the economic impact of not having children, especially in rural communities where livelihoods are still very much entwined with having children. Um, which is something, of course, in the UK or in Belgium, this is much less the case. So overall, anthropological and sociological research always repeatedly mentions that the implications of infertility are stronger in sub-Saharan African countries because of these contextual factors. Do we know what happens to couples who fail to conceive or, or gain any support to have children? Many of the social, uh, emotional and financial implications just continue. So women are having strong emotional problems. They are also very likely to be in a polygenous marriage because it's likely that their husband will remarry to find a second or third wife who can have children. But I would also like to stress that also women are actively trying to coping and managing the situation. So it's not that these women are passive victims. They're really trying to overcome their own struggles. One way to do this is by fostering children. Fosterage in the Gambia is very common, even for women who do have children. So it's quite common that children are given for a short or longer period to a family member or to a close friend to take care of. So these children then can provide emotional affection and provide domestic help. And sometimes these children will know they're not with their birth mother but sometimes these children do not know. So it really depends on the situations. And then we, of course, have these Kanyelang groups who 
provide support and um, yeah, who work together, who help each other in, a, in another way. So these are two ways of coping, but there are many other ways that women try to overcome the struggles. But in general, yes, it's, it's a coping mechanism to cope with the challenges of infertility. And so um, many of the women and also couples who, who, who are unable to uh, conceive, they do engage with our NGO partner, Safe Haven. And Safe Haven uh, was created in a, several years ago because of the gap in support for women and for couples who um, are struggling with infertility in the Gambia. It is the first, it is Gambia's first fertility related NGO and it's run by um, a wonderful Gambian lady, uh, our colleague Ms. Saini Sise. And they uh, provide information and they provide support and they provide encouragement particularly to women but also to men who find themselves in, in this position and they're very engaged in also lobbying the government to uh, improve um, service provision uh, on the ground. That's indeed true. There are many organizations uh, working on this. We have Safe Haven, that's a very close partner to us. And then there are also other organizations like Dimbaya, um, which is more oriented towards the medical side, but also aims to support women and men experiencing infertility problems. You've also worked with the Gambian Ministry of Health and Director of Health Services. What has that collaboration involved? So all our research, uh, whether it's fertility related or the the other work that we've done uh, previously on malaria, on health systems, and also some work on COVID, etc., um, all of our research in the Gambia is uh, in a close partnership with um, the Ministry of Health, the Gambian Ministry of Health, particularly with the Directorate, uh, Directorate of Health Services. This is really because we see this as a as a really strategic, important and strategic partnership, since we're not just doing research for the sake of doing research. What we really want to do is to have impact on the ground directly for the people who um, are the participants in our research and also who are the beneficiaries of our research. And this is only possible when working closely together with um, policy makers and, and government partners. So we work with them right from the start of the idea generation, um, to you know the ethics uh, the, to designing the protocol, uh, the ethics approval of course, and the implementation um, of the research and the writing up and dissemination of the work. So they are um, a core partner um, of ours uh, for all our research. Similarly, the Bindens Bureau is also one important uh, partner base for my PhD research. They really helped me with identifying participants, with thinking about me, about how we can uh, frame certain research questions and what might be interesting to look into. So uh, the government support from the Gambia has been very instrumental from the beginning onwards. And the WHO have been involved more recently in this work with you. So are you hoping to work with them more going forward? Uh, Certainly. The WHO are a key partner and they're helping us work across different countries to find lessons learned and best practices, and also by offering technical support and assistance to government partners throughout the fertility care policy cycle and in strengthening the delivery of infertility services. They joined us at the Infertility Policy Dialogue last June, uh, which we co-hosted with the Gambian government, um, where we presented our research findings and used the participatory process to prioritize areas of future activities. 
And we had some excellent discussions with WHO and um, found a lot of shared interests um, with their Department of Sexual and Reproductive Health and Research. So we're very much looking forward to our future engagements uh, in the area. This work has resulted in more funding. You're working with the PhD student on this topic. So what can you tell me about this ongoing strand of research? Well, we currently have two complementary strands of research that is ongoing, uh, which build on our earlier work. The first of these is on fertility awareness raising through the establishment of Gambia's first National Fertility Awareness Week, like the one we have here in the UK and elsewhere. And um, this was uh, the idea of our NGO partner, Safe Haven. And so uh, they approached us um, to work together with them in this area. And we have conducted formative research over the last two years um, to help co-design the activities of the Awareness Raising Week and to ensure that they are social culturally acceptable um, and relevant in the Gambia, in the Gambian setting. And in 2022, together with the government and NGO partners, we plan on hosting the week-long activities. Um, and as part of our ongoing research, we will also capture their impact um, in terms of changes in knowledge, understanding and attitude towards infertility among different stakeholders, uh, as well as um, instrumental changes in fertility care policies and uh, practices, including care-seeking uh, behavior of Gambian uh, women and men. And the issue of men engaging with fertility care is crucial. Um, and we are actually currently designing a study with Alan Pacey and the broader team um, to build on our pilot work in this area of male infertility. Complementary to that, I have already mentioned the work Anna Aferi is leading on um, through her PhD, which aims to understand the inclusion of fertility care in reproductive health programs in the Gambia. Can you tell me about your White Rose Network Collaboration Fund Award? This includes partners from other African nations as well as uh, collaborators in Leeds and York. Oh, we're very grateful to have support from the White Rose Collaboration Fund to help us establish uh, an interdisciplinary network on fertility care in low and middle income countries. Uh, together with our partners, we launched this network just one month ago. Um, and the White Rose Network is a collaboration between the universities of Sheffield, Leeds and York. And within um, our network, we also have colleagues from across Africa, including the Gambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Kenya and Uganda, as well as uh, Belgium, Switzerland and the UK, and further afield, including Australia, South Asia and the Caribbean. So it's truly a global network and we are delighted to have this opportunity to work together with our international partners to help improve fertility care for all. Uh, as part of the network, we are providing research training and working on synthesizing the knowledge already available, whilst also prioritizing with our partners area for further research. And you can find us on Twitter at Ferticare for All. Brilliant. And going forward, what other future plans do you have with this work? Yeah, I think there are many opportunities and areas still to uh, be explored, especially as our team is getting bigger and 
people from various disciplines are being uh, involved, including people from the White Rose Network. One topic from a social science perspective that I find very interesting is uh, male fertility, because even in the high income settings in the UK, Belgium and so on, there's not a lot of research on to this. So I think it's a very interesting topic that needs to be further explored. Another topic I think is very interesting is the moral and ethical implications of the spreading of reproductive technologies in to new settings. We often think that technology is something value neutral, but actually when we apply this, um, especially in context with their different cultural and social values, I think it's interesting to see what happens with the implementation of this technology and how we can develop ethical guidelines and tools around this. Not that we need to do this, but just to see how this process is happening. And of course, I would think there are a lot of great opportunities to work together to see and test interventions related to infertility, both medical, but maybe also social and emotional ways of supporting and raising awareness about infertility. One of the things we we are also interested in looking at is the importance of infertility in the policy space. So as I mentioned earlier, infertility has been largely neglected in terms of research, but also in terms of policymaking and practice. And we're trying to, through our work um, and with our partner countries, trying to understand why that is the case um, and to try and find ways around that so that infertility does receive uh, more uh, priority in the reproductive health space and indeed additional funding. Because as we know, without the funds, um, none of these services um, will be uh, Will, will will be made available to the people who need them the most. Well, I want to wish you all the best with this important research and uh, thank you for your time today and, and good luck with everything going forward. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to be here and uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, maybe your next session. <laughs> thank you very much. It was great to be part of the podcast. We really appreciate it and um, thanks to all the listeners. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs>